Welcome, everyone. Welcome to this fourth uh, lecture in the Euro Crisis at LSE series, which is co-organised with Policy Network and the European Institute here at the London School of Economics. It's a great pleasure for me today to welcome Professor Hans-Peter Kriesi, who is um, at the moment the Stein Rockland Chair of Comparative Politics at the European University Institute in Florence. He's held many other distinguished professorships at the University of Zurich, Geneva, and Amsterdam. And he's, as I'm sure most of you will know, one of the foremost political sociologists in Europe. His work, I think, expertly combines sociology and rigorous comparative politics, which is rare. And it's transformed our understanding of European politics in many different areas, in the areas of new social movements, in the study of direct democracy, and most recently, and very significantly, his work has provided a new map of political conflict and cleavage politics in Europe in the age of globalization. So I can't imagine a better person uh, to enlighten us about the consequences of the Euro crisis for electoral politics and protest movement across Europe. So I'm delighted to introduce you to Professor Hans-Peter Kleisi. Thank you. It is a great honor for me to be here, and uh, I hope I can fulfill the expectations. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about something which is uh, new to me, and uh, a lot of what I will have to say is quite exploratory. So I will first uh, introduce you so, to some theoretical ideas about convention and contention. Uh, the political consequences of the crisis are electoral consequences, but they are also consequences in terms of political protest. And what I would like to do is to bring together two types of literatures which usually don't speak to each other. On the one hand, the literature on electoral politics, and on the other hand, the literature on political protest and social movements. Uh, then I will show you the results of some quantitative analysis of the electoral impact of the crisis, and I will go on to present two case studies which uh, allow me to uh, discuss the interaction between convention and contention in these two cases. And then I draw some conclusions. Now, the starting point of the consequences of the crisis is that people are very angry about the crisis because they have serious grievances. Now, a group with serious grievances can do two things. It can raise its voice or it can exit from policies. And whether it will raise its voice or whether it will exit depends on organization on the one hand and on opportunities on the other hand, and to raise one's voice in a democratic society is to vote. Uh, the first way to express discontent and to voice grievances is in the electoral arena because we have all learned that we have a political right and our political right is uh, expressed in the electoral arena. There are other institutional arenas where we can raise our voice in some countries uh, more than in others. I will uh, point to some of these other channels. And there is, of course, also 
the possibility to raise one's voice in the protest arena. Now, in the electoral arena first, there is a big literature on economic voting. What does this literature say? The, the hypothesis of this literature is very simple. A rational voter rewards the incumbent and the incumbent is either the chief executive, the prime minister in Great Britain, or the governing coalition in consensus democratic or PR countries, there are cabinets governing coalitions. So these uh, incumbents are rewarded when the economy is good and they are punished when the economy is bad. In normal elections, uh, Dutch and Stevenson have shown, uh, economic voting is both pervasive and variable depending on the context of the country. The expectation is, of course, that in times of crisis, in an economic crisis, economic voting is even stronger than in normal times. So we expect that sitting governments are punished when uh, the economy is bad. Economic voting, the literature shows, is context-dependent. And one of the critical variables is the clarity of political responsibility. The punishment that has been shown by Powell and Witten, the punishment is stronger where government responsibility is clearly identifiable and governments can be held accountable. And governments can be better held accountable in majoritarian systems. That is, in systems like uh, in Great Britain, whereas in PR systems, consensus democratic uh, systems, Responsibility is diluted and cannot be attributed as in majoritarian systems. There is another idea uh, on context dependence which has to do with the openness of the economy. Uh, analysis, empirical analysis have shown that voters understand that governments cannot do everything when the economy is open, when uh, capital mobility is high, when uh, the exposure to the world economy of the national economy is important. So this is the government-constrained hypothesis which argues that in open economies uh, the electoral punishment in times of crisis might be less than in more closed economies. Now, the economic voting literature is very good when it comes to studying the fate of incumbents, but it doesn't have much to say about the parties which benefit from the punishment of the incumbents. And there are different possibilities. The voters who are frustrated could turn to established opposition parties. And that's mainly what uh, might happen in Western Europe. In Central and Eastern Europe, party systems are much less institutionalized than in Western Europe. And as it happens, we know that in elections in Central and Eastern Europe, new parties come up at every new election. And these new parties may even go to win the elections. So uh, what happens in Central and Eastern Europe oftentimes is that a new party mainly a centrist party, comes up and wins the elections. And in the next elections, it's voted out of the uh, parliament again. 
The second hypothesis would be a populist hypothesis. That is, the voters turn against all mainstream parties and take uh, uh, or favor challenges from the left or the right, the extreme left or the populist left and the populist right. Uh, more specifically, the populist right hypothesis uh, would uh, stipulate that the voters mainly favor the populist right. And this is a hypothesis which is suggested by our previous work because we have shown that in Western Europe the populist right has been uh, uh, highly successful in electoral terms in many countries even before the crisis. And then there is the exit hypothesis. Voters might turn against all existing parties and vote for anti-parties or they might abstain. They might be so disgusted with politics that they no longer vote. They might turn to alternative channels, alternative institutional channels. And in many countries there are direct democratic institutions which allow the voters to vote on issue-specific uh, questions. They might also turn to litigation in court or they might appeal to other government institutions. For example, against the prime minister, they might appeal to the president. And when we uh, discuss the case studies, we shall see that this indeed has happened. Or the voters might turn to the protest arena. That is, uh, in the words of Schatzschneider, they might turn to the expansion of conflict outside of uh, the traditional political channels. They might unleash a debate where there has been none before in order to draw public attention to their predicament. And the idea is that they, at least in Western Europe, voters have uh, increasingly done this uh, because according to the felicitous phrase of Meyer and Taro, West European societies have become movement societies. That is, protest has become part of a normal repertoire of doing political action. Uh, Dieter Fuchs, a German colleague, has called this the normalization of the unconventional. So it is nothing special today when voters turn to the protest arena. But that has also a drawback. The drawback is that protest is not so newsworthy as it was before. Some uh, demonstrations go unnoticed, are not even reported in the public sphere, and that means uh, voters have to step up uh, their protest. They have to radicalize in order to have an impact. And under the impact of the economic crisis, we can imagine that they step up massively their protest and uh, create, with the purpose of creating a political crisis uh, of extraordinary proportions in a given country. Now, how I said before, I'm interested in the interaction between electoral reactions and protest reactions, and how do these two types of reactions interact there are several ideas which I have in this respect. One is the triggers. Uh, my assumption is that the government takes the initiative. So the government, for example, takes austerity measures and the population reacts. The challengers react to government measures. So the likely triggers of the reactions 
are in the crisis austerity or restructuring measures which have been either unilaterally, domestically initiated or which have been the result of the intervention by the IMF, the Troika or some other external actor. How about the channels of reaction? National re uh, elections follow their own rhythm. That means that maybe the opportunity to throw the rascals out, to punish the incumbents, does not come up immediately. So uh, there might be, however, a secondary election, a regional election, a local election, or a European election, which serves as uh, the possibility to put pressure on the, on the national government and which might serve in uh, such a way as a referendum on the national government. There might also be the possibility to mobilize in alternative channels, as I already said, in order to put pressure on the government or in order to influence future electoral campaigns. How about the mobilizing organizations? Who would be a candidate for the challenging organizations? On the one hand, certainly the opposition parties and the smaller parties at the periphery of the party system, but also organizations directly targeted by the austerity and the restructuring measures. For example, labor unions of public employees, pensioners and student organizations, or for example, uh, the uh, targets of liberalization measures like farmers, taxi drivers, truckers or pharmacists. For example, in Greece, the truckers in 2010 have launched a massive uh, strike when the government threatened to take away their licenses which uh, uh, imposed a cartelized market on uh, transportations in Greece. Now, results. What can challenges obtain by challenging the government? First of all, they can obtain procedural concessions. A change of leadership in the governing parties, cabinet reshuffle, resignation of minority partners of the government, call for early elections, ceding responsibility to caretaker government of technocrats. For example, in Italy, Mario Monti is a technocratic government which replaced the incumbent government of Berlusconi. Or in Greece, also uh, a technocratic government which took over from the elected government. They can also obtain maybe constitutional change. And possibly they, of course, want to obtain not only procedural concessions, but also substantive concessions. But these are difficult to obtain. And governments in the times of crisis typically are caught between a rock, international pressure, and a hard place, the domestic expectations. Peter Mayer uh, from uh, the European University Institute, he talks about the dilemma of responsibility and responsiveness. What does he mean? He means governments have to res be responsive to their citizens. They have to fulfill the expectations of their citizens. 
And if they don't, citizens are dissatisfied and uh, mobilize against them. But at the same time, governments have also to be responsible with respect to a whole series of stakeholders which are not their citizens. For example, other governments in the European Union, in the European Council, they have to be taking in, they have to take into account the opinion of other governments, or they have to take into account the opinion of the bond market. They have to be credible uh, uh, on the bond market and so forth. There are a whole series of stakeholders and the dilemma of responsibility and responsiveness imposes on governments very difficult uh, choices. Now, how does convention and contention possibly uh, interact in, the, in times of crisis? I take my ideas from Karabin, that's a colleague who That's a colleague who uh, wrote the paper in Mobilization, that's a social movement journal, and he made the distinction between opportunity increasing and threat increasing dynamics. In the opportunity increasing dynamics, the challenger finds support in the political system, allowing them to enlarge their coalition and eventually to obtain concessions. In the threat increasing dynamics, Challenges are increasingly de uh, repressed, their access channels are closed, and even what they already have in the status quo is uh, put into question. Now, under what conditions can we expect which one of the dynamics? The opportunity increasing dynamics can be, I mean, these are speculative ideas, and I told you it's an exploratory talk. Uh, these are uh, opportunity increasing dynamics are possible when challengers face a government composed of traditional allies. For example, when public uh, employee unions face a government of the left and or when there are some other public authorities capable to check the, government, the government's decision. For example, a president or the courts or uh, people in a referendum vote. Threat increasing dynamics, that's the opposite. That's when you face a government which is uh, usually uh, your adversary or when you uh, have no other public authorities at the disposition with disposal which are able to check the government. And there is the possibility of a combination of these two scenarios. In a first step, in a crisis, you mobilize against the austerity measures, you might obtain procedural concessions. That is, a government reshuffle or a, a change of leadership in the governing party. You might even uh, put pressure on the government in secondary elections in a referendum and you might uh, punish the government in national elections. Then there is a second step. The new government might just be forced to do what the old government has done. Take the Irish case. Enda Kenny has proposed to renegotiate the deal uh, between Ireland and Europe, and uh, Europe just said, no way. Uh, 
we uh, stick to our previous deal and you have to fulfill the expectations uh, which we uh, negotiated with your previous government. So the voters actually, in this no-choice situation, the voters might turn to alternative options. If their vote has no consequence, they might turn to populist challengers. In Greece, they have first voted 2009, in the first elections after the crisis, they have first voted for the mainstream opposition. And then in the second election after the crisis, that is last spring in 2012, they have still uh, majoritarily voted for the mainstream parties, but they have massively, about 40% of them, also voted for populist alternatives like Syriza, Krisi, Avgi. Or they might even turn to anti-parties. Uh, in Italy, we have now uh, a party, uh, it's a movimento, Movimento di Cinque Stelle. It's a movement which participates in elections and which is expected to make about 13%. In Sicily, in the regional elections in spring, in, in a month ago or two months ago, they made 18%. So the voters turn to comics or uh, outsiders, really outsiders of the political system, who are against all members of the political elite. Or they may uh, turn away from the electoral channel uh, in general, abstain or radicalize and uh, mobilize in the streets to create a political crisis. How this turns out is dependent on government reaction. So you see what I have in mind is a two-step procedure. Electoral punishment might be a first step. In a second step, if electoral punishment does not lead to any alternative policy, but just confirms what uh, uh, the previous government does, voters might be fed up with uh, electoral politics altogether and turn away and uh, mobilize in the streets. In Greece, uh, we are... I mean, I interpreted the Greek situation. We are in a situation after step two. Maybe you have read the newspaper uh, last week. The underground in Athens, workers have uh, organized a strike for a week, and then the government has intervened. The government reaction was repressive, no concession. The government intervened and... Uh, under threat, uh, uh, massive threats of massive sanctions, uh, called the workers back to work. Now, these are the theoretical ideas. Now I come to part two, the economic voting, the empirical analysis. I, I, I go through, through this very briefly. We, what I did... I compared the last elections before the crisis with the first election after the crisis. In 29 countries, uh, uh, there are 31 cases. They are all EU member states plus three non-member states, namely Switzerland, Norway, and Iceland. Uh, the units of analysis are, I look at 
the vote for the prime minister and uh, the vote for the cabinets, that is all incumbents in a given election. Uh, so the dependent variable is indeed the first post-crisis election and post-crisis is after the crash of Lehman Brothers in fall 2008. The clarity of context is uh, based on a distinction between PR and majoritarian countries. Here are the majoritarian countries. And I measured the gravity of the crisis, my main independent variable, either with the growth rate in the year preceding the election, the unemployment rate at the moment of the election, or uh, the budget deficit in the year preceding the election year. If you add, just uh, as, a, as an exercise uh, to illustrate how serious the crisis has been in different countries, I have added up these three indicators to a grievances index. And you see, uh, at the time of the election, this index was highest, at the time of the first post-crisis election, this index was highest in Ireland, Iceland, Spain, Portugal, and Greece, uh, in Western Europe, and uh, in Latvia, Hungary, and Lithuania, in Central and Eastern Europe. You, you see that there are also countries which were not very severely hit by the crisis. Norway, for example, didn't have any problems at all. Norway has oil. So Norway has a, a lot of money and no problems uh, in terms of budgetary deficit. They had a 19% budgetary surplus. But Switzerland, Finland, Slovenia, Malta, other countries which did not at the time of the election not have serious problems, and we expect their governments were not sanctioned. So, what I show you now is the post-crisis electoral support of incumbent parties as a function of their pre-crisis results and as a function of the clarity of responsibility. So, before uh, I show you the economic part of it, this first uh, table, it's very simple, regression. Uh, I did it separately for Western Europe and Central and Eastern Europe, and I did it in, on either side separately for the Prime Minister's Party and for the Cabinet parties as a whole. What do you see here? You see the pre-crisis election result has a very strong effect on the post-crisis election result in Western Europe, but not in Eastern Europe. In Eastern Europe, you cannot, virtually you cannot predict the post-crisis election result with a pre-crisis election result. And, I mean, this is very important to keep in mind. In Eastern Europe, something else is going on. They have, as I have said before, highly volatile, non-institutionalized party systems, which uh, see the creation of new parties all the time. So. In every election, also before the crisis, you could not predict the, post, uh, the next election on the basis of the previous election results. What you also see in majoritarian countries in Western Europe, uh, the punishment is bigger than in PR countries. The effect is 5% uh, for the Prime Minister's Party and 2.6% for uh, the Cabinet as a whole. Now, how about the impact of the economic situation? Let's look first at GDP growth 
and change in electoral support for the cabinet. You see two lines. One steep line, this is what we expect, that's the dashed line. The greater the economic growth, the greater the support of the incumbents. And the lower the economic growth, the lower the support for the incumbents. That's Eastern Europe. In Western Europe, the line is flat. It's the solid line, it's almost flat, and that means no punishment uh, for bad economic growth. And that has something to do with these three countries, Luxembourg, Iceland, and Germany, which are the ones who did worse at the time of the election in terms of economic growth, uh, but whose governments were not more severely punished than other governments in Western Europe who came up for election. We can, in uh, the discussion, we can come back to these cases and ask ourselves why, for example, the German CDU was not more punished than it indeed was. If we do it formally, uh, we can see indeed that uh, the effect of growth is significant in Central and Eastern Europe. It's uh, not significant in the West. In the West, uh, uh, only in majoritarian countries, the growth rate had an impact on uh, the post-election results. So the results are mixed so far. Uh, I don't show you unemployment uh, to be brief. Uh, I show you, however, the impact of the budget deficit in the previous year uh, on the support of the Prime Minister's party. And here you see a very nice relationship. It's a very strong relationship. The bigger the budgetary deficit, that is, the more to the left you go, the greater the punishment, the lower uh, uh, the point on the vertical axis, you might think that this relationship has something to do with the outliers. Ireland on the one hand and Norway, the, the country with oil, on the other hand. But this is not the case. If you take out Norway and Ireland, you get the dashed line, which is even steeper than uh, the solid line. So this uh, relationship really seems to hold. What I did, I did it again separately for Central and Eastern Europe and for Western Europe, and you see three lines. The solid line is Western Europe. So in Western Europe, that seems to be a strong effect. The other two lines are Eastern Europe. And the difference between the two lines is Slovakia and Poland. If you take out Slovakia and Poland, you get the parallel line to Western Europe. That is, the relationship is the same, only punishment is generally greater in Central and Eastern Europe. Why Slovakia and Poland? I mean, these are exceptions. And they are, uh, at least as far as Slovakia is concerned, telling exceptions. Slovakia became, in the year uh, of the first elections uh, after the crisis, on the 1st of January 2009, became a member of the Eurozone. And this was, for the Slovakian government, a great uh, achievement. So the Slovakian voters were uh, re-electing the sitting government because it has been so successful that it became a member of the Eurozone. Poland uh, got very well through the crisis for other reasons, so uh, the Polish government was not uh, punished to the extent uh, as the 
it might have been because of its government deficit, because Poland in general did quite well in the crisis. Here again is uh, the formal uh, analysis. I don't want to go into the details, but note uh, in Western Europe, the deficit uh, plus the, the clarity of responsibility and the interaction between the two explain about 90% of, uh, of the variance. So we don't do so badly with uh, the deficit and the clarity of responsibility. In Eastern Europe, it's uh, for the cabinet and without Poland and Slovakia, we can also explain about 90% of the variance with uh, the deficit and the GDP growth rate. So what intermediary summary, what did we learn? Uh, the economic voting hypothesis is more or less confirmed. Incumbent parties are severely punished for the crisis. They are most punished in uh, situations where the clarity of responsibility is given. The trigger of the punishment varies. In West European countries, I didn't show you that, but their unemployment rates are important. In Central and Eastern European countries, growth rates are more critical. And in all countries, budgetary balances are crucial for the punishment of uh, incumbent parties. Now, why are budgetary balances crucial? And uh, in order to answer this question, I now turn to case studies, and I, I took one of the countries from Western Europe and one from Eastern, Central and Eastern Europe. So let's look at Iceland first. It's a tiny country, but it's very interesting what happened under the impact of the crisis there. It was the first country to be hit by the crisis. It was a banking crisis. In Iceland, like in the United States, uh, it was a banking crisis and the government, the, the three uh, big banks in Iceland broke down almost immediately after Lehman Brothers and the government had to nationalize these banks. But in addition, it became the victim of the intervention of the IMF. It had to go to the IMF and ask for support. It was the first Western European country after Great Britain in 1976. So uh, uh, at that time, a very exceptional intervention. Uh, the IMF imposed capital controls uh, in order to stop devaluation, which had already reached 70% at that time. It restructured the banking system, including the recapitalization of the banks and including the guarantee of the savings of foreign depositors. Uh, this is a very important aspect of what happened in Iceland. In Iceland, the big banks had uh, so-called ice-safe accounts. These were deposit accounts mainly of British and Dutch citizens who had invested into uh, these uh, deposits in order to have high interest rates. And under the Treaty of the European Economic Area Act, which uh, was signed by Iceland in 1994, Iceland was obliged to guarantee the savings of these foreign depositors out of 
the pocket of Icelandic taxpayers. Then it imposed austerity measures for fiscal consolidation. Now, in Iceland, there were opportunity-increasing dynamics. The population protested at the end of December, beginning of January, uh, in the so-called pots and pans revolution. Iceland is a tiny country. 2,000 people went in front of parliament and banged on pots and pans, made noise with pots and pans, and that was sufficient to create a dramatic political crisis, which brought down the government, uh, brought down the prime minister. The minority partner in the government was the Social Democratic Party, which got cold feet because its own people had mobilized in this pots and pan revolution and uh, early elections were called. Economic voting was massive. The a Conservative Party, which was the Prime Minister's party, it had exchanged its leadership, but that was not sufficient. Uh, minus 12.9%. It was its worst result uh, in the post-war period. Uh, it was massively punished uh, because it had governed from 1995 up to this moment. The coalition partner was not punished. The coalition partner who had brought down the government to the Social Democratic Party actually became the new governing party. So the Icelandic voters had turned against uh, the conservatives to the opposition, main opposition party. Now, the government negotiated this deal with the uh, British and the Dutch uh, government uh, in order to guarantee the ICE-safe accounts. But the people did not like it. So the people mobilized in a petition. About a quarter of the Icelandic voters signed the petition against the ICE-safe deal, and the president heeded the call. The president, according to the Icelandic constitution, can call a referendum when uh, the voters demand it, and he did do this. So he, set, uh, he organized a referendum for this ISAFE deal, and twice, that happened twice, twice the voters rejected the deal. So the taxpayer said, we are not paying for these British and Dutch deposits. So what is important from my point of view, the direct democratic institutions were used to put additional pressure on the government. And the government could use this pressure in the international negotiations with British and Dutch governments. And it could say, we, our hands are tied. I mean, our voters want uh, a better deal and they got a better deal. Uh, in the end, uh, the, the deals they got from the British and the Dutch governments were much better, although in the very end, these deals were not respected either. So, what did the discontented voters do? They first endorsed the mainstream party, but because this party negotiated deals with uh, the other governments, uh, the voters became discontented with this mainstream uh, party as well, and they turned against all mainstream parties in the next local elections. The next election, the, there have not been yet other national elections, but the next elections were local elections. And what did they do? They opted for the populist or anti-party strategy. 
In Reykjavik, the capital of the country, they voted for John Gnar. That's a comic uh, Pepe Gelo style, who uh, promised to uh, break all campaign promises. So they turned against... <laughs> he, he made a plurality of the votes, 39%, and became mayor of Reykjavik. The voters in Iceland had some success uh, in the process the constitution was revised and as I already uh, told you there were these referenda and these referenda in fact had substantive success they strengthened the hand of the government negotiators with the foreign investors and uh, the government negotiators obtained a more favorable deal actually in the end they didn't pay anything there was just last week there was a uh, court decision of the European uh, Economic Area Court which decided that uh, the Icelandic uh, banks would not have to pay for the Dutch and the British depositors. That was last week. So this is a success story. It's actually the only success story because uh, in all the other cases uh, the Challengers did not obtain any substantive concessions. Now, Latvia is in one point very different from Iceland, and that is, uh, as I see it, is uh, common to all Central and Eastern Euro European cases. Popular protest preceded the economic crisis in these countries, and uh, the important point was corruption. Uh, in Latvia, corruption triggered a popular revolt already in 2007. It was the so-called Umbrella Revolution. And the people, uh, again, direct democratic institutions were used. The people turned to uh, the direct democratic channel, asked for a referendum vote, in particular for a constitutional change, uh, which should introduce the popular right to dismiss parliament and call early elections. Now, the, the government was very smart. It put the vote on the agenda during the summer vacations. And they have a quorum of 50%, so during the summer vacations nobody was around, and only 40% participated in the vote. 95% accepted the constitutional change, but the quorum was not uh, reached, so too bad for the challengers. But then came the financial crisis, and the crisis revealed the economic vulnerability of the country. Again, the IMF intervened and imposed a rescue package, restructuring of the banking system, and severe austerity measures, for example, 25% cut in public sector salaries. And that unleashed massive protest. And this massive protest, interestingly, picked up again the idea of constitutional change, that is the possibility to dismiss the parliament before uh, the next uh, 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 election. So that means organization of early elections. Now, in this case as well, the people got an unexpected ally in the form of the president of the country. The president, uh, indeed, once these massive protest events in January had taken place, the day after, he put pressure on the parliament and he said uh, that 
if the Parliament does not accept these constitutional changes, he will dismiss the Parliament and call early elections. Parliament heeded the call. Uh, first of all, uh, the Prime Minister stepped down. Uh, there was a reshuffling of the Cabinet. The parties were the same. But uh, there was, uh, the former minority partner became uh, a member of the former minority partner, became the Prime Minister. And uh, this new Cabinet uh, and Parliament accepted the constitutional change and the President accepted uh, that uh, Parliament had heeded his call. Nevertheless, uh, for different reasons, early elections were held and the electoral punishment of the Prime Minister's party during the crisis was exemplary. Uh, this party lost 21.4%, uh, was diminished to a minor party. But otherwise, I mean, nothing happened in substantive terms. Uh, Latvia has recovered from the crisis very well in the meantime, but thanks to or in spite of very drastic austerity measures. I come to my conclusion. What do the case studies show? I mean, I, I told you these stories rapidly and, and a bit uh, sketchy, but in my view they show that uh, popular contention closely interacts with conventional electoral politics. Popular reactions intervene in between uh, elections, but they influence the electoral cycle and they influence also the behavior of parties without uh, elections being held. Uh, for example, leaders of parties are changed or cabinets are reshuffled, and that has important consequences for the policy, even if, I mean, in Latvia, for example, there was a constitutional change, it was a procedural success, even if there was no substantive success. The protest, and uh, this is true of other countries as well, uh, in both of the cases I showed you, the protest was triggered by interventions from the outside, by the IMF, uh, and, and it was triggered by the austerity measures which were imposed by the IMF rescue packages. And I think this is the missing link between the budgetary deficits and the electoral punishment which I showed you before, this electoral punishment is a reaction. If you have uh, large deficits, you become the object of uh, interventions from the outside. You have to adopt austerity measures, and the reaction against these austerity measures leads to uh, electoral punishment in the final event. You can uh, see that also in Ireland, you can see it in Greece, you can see it in Portugal, and you can see it in Spain. So in the countries which are most severely hit by the crisis, it's actually uh, the intervention from the outside, or in Spain, for example, these uh, austerity measures were, were adopted unilaterally, or uh, the decisions of the, the governments to do something about uh, the budgetary deficit. There's this important difference between West uh, uh, European and Central and Eastern European countries. In Western European countries, the crisis triggers the protest. In Eastern European countries, it amplified an already existing protest. Hungary would be another case. In Hungary, there was a big 
crisis already before uh, the outbreak of the economic crisis. The case studies show that government coalitions become unstable, cabinets uh, reshuffle, uh, they show a lack of loyalty of minority partners, which might explain why uh, the Prime Minister's Party actually uh, are hit more by the economic uh, indicators than the other cabinet members. These are the allies, uh, the importance of direct democratic instruments, and finally, uh, very importantly, the impact of protest is very limited uh, in the countries which uh, I have looked at more closely there was no except in Iceland no substantive success of uh, protest thank you very much Um, well, after this very interesting and stimulating talk and these very interesting findings, I'm sure that you will have many questions. So we'll open the floor to questions now. We'll take two or three and then give Professor Crazy a time to answer them. Um, before you uh, ask your question, if you could please introduce yourself and, and the institution you represent, if any. Johannes. Johannes Linden, uh, European Central Bank. I, I, I thought your, your um, talk was very interesting because it really uh, focuses on the question of how national political systems are dealing uh, with crisis and the aftermath of crisis. And so how are they capable in a way of, of um, having the interaction with the, with the national public. Um, yet I was puzzled because... In, in the discourse that I've been following, we see Latvia as a very positive case. Um, and I feel your normative construct that you present is a bit simplistic in the sense that you say, um, well, there is the IMF, these are the bad guys, they come in, they dictate austerity, and therefore... Uh, the protest is legitimate. I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but I would like to, to push you on this a bit. Because I think uh, a key issue here is that uh, these were governments that failed to do, their, 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 failed to do their, their job. I mean, in Iceland, they have uh, seeingly allowed a, a financial sector to, to clearly exceed uh, the GDP of the country. They didn't do any proper supervision or market-prudential supervision. Uh, then, then, and in Latvia, it's the same, in the, in the sense that uh, here was a government that re realized, okay, with the help of the IMF, we need to address the problems that we have, and in a way showed, that's my way of how I would portray it, showed leadership and said, here we need to convince the, the public or we need to tell the public, stay on, the reforms will pay off, and in the Latvian case, the reforms have paid off. So what I'm, what I, well, the two points I want to make is, first, uh, isn't it a bit too simplistic to say so just a b bad IMF is, is coming in and is asking for policies that, that are over the top, and this neglects the fact that these governments have done mistakes leading them into the situation they are in. Secondly, what is your normative view on protest? It seems to me that you say protest is in itself always justified. 
Um, uh, what, I mean, what, what do you see? I mean, I would say, okay, democracy should sort of allow through the party system, through elections, through referenda, to, to in, include protest. That is that I, I see where, like, like where you come from. But uh, I would like to you to specify this a bit more. Thanks. Thank you. Um, Abby, you had a question? Hi, um, I'm Abby Heller. I'm a master's student in the European Institute here at LSE. I was just wondering if you could comment on how you picked your cases, um, other than ones from Western Europe and ones from Central and Eastern Europe. Could you comment a little bit more on that and how representative they are of um, other countries? A Beltro, please. from the European Institute. Um, I liked about your case study of Iceland that you actually showed that protest often is not bad for the government. It strengthens its hand if it's good in, in, in building it, so to speak, into the negotiations with, with uh, international donors. So in, in contrast to the earlier vote, I don't think, I, I think there was a bit more to it, what you said about protest or contention uh, and, and what it does, it's not only, you know, a problem for government, they can, uh, it can strengthen their, their hands. Um, but so I, I, uh, I wonder whether how, how generally you think that is the case. You, that wasn't quite in your framework, you know, when can contention be made a lever for the government getting more uh, out of crisis management than it otherwise would? Thank you. If you want to respond to these three first. These are very good questions. I mean, the easiest one is yours. <laughs> <laughs> How did I choose my cases? I chose the worst cases. I chose the countries most heavily hit by the crisis because I thought their protest would be most important. But uh, this, as I said, is an exploratory analysis. I would like to do it systematically for all the countries. But this is a big effort, and uh, I need money to do this. I, uh, I asked for money to do this. Now, now uh, your qu uh, questions are more uh, difficult to say from the point of view of the European Central Bank or the IMF. Latvia is a positive case. I mean... It came out well uh, out of the crisis. The program worked. If you are a Latvian public official and you got a 25% salary cut, you probably don't share this opinion. So, see, my normative point of view on protest is agnostic. I, I, I might not have uh, been clear about this. I'm, I'm a here I'm a political scientist analyzing what uh, uh, is the interaction between political protest and electoral behavior. But uh, I can, of course, understand that these people are highly dissatisfied and fed up. You said it yourself. I mean, the government didn't do its job. And the people wanted to sanction the government. So uh, they, they just protested against this government and indeed they did away with this government but uh, they threw the rascals out but the new government could not do in economic terms it could not do very, very much about these 25% salary cuts and from the point of view of democratic legitimacy this is a problem 
I mean, I, I, you know the piece, and, uh, I, but for the others, I cite the piece. Uh, the argument comes from Fritz Scharpf. Fred Scharpf makes a distinction between input legitimacy and output legitimacy. Output legitimacy is if the country is better. Like output legitimacy is if uh, the country grows, uh, unemployment goes down, budgetary deficits go down. Now, in terms of, Latvia is a special case, but take the Greeks. In terms of output legitimacy, the situation is catastrophic. The country uh, gets ever deeper into difficulties. Then there is input legitimacy. Input legitimacy is uh, that you have a say in what happens in your country. And in order to have a say, you need to have a choice. That is, uh, if you vote for one option, then you get one policy, and if you vote for another option, then you get another policy. But if whatever you vote for, you get the same policy, there is no input legitimacy. That's Fritz Scharpf's argument, and if there is neither input nor output legitimacy, then there is no democratic legitimacy. And the risk is that people turn against democracy. And of course, he has in mind, he doesn't say it explicitly, but I imagine as a German it happened once before. We had the Weimar Republic, which uh, in deep economic crisis turned to an authoritarian uh, solution. And, uh, I mean, there are others uh, in the choir of uh, academics who are preoccupied, who paint this uh, on the wall, this this possibility. And if you look at Greece, it seems uh, not so uh, far-fetched a scenario. And and my second step implies uh, the possibility of such a scenario. But I'm not, I mean, it was said this afternoon several times, we cannot predict uh, social scientists and we should not do it. But there are social scientists who are preoccupied. And and that's that's what I want to say. I I don't think protest, as you uh, suggested in, in the second point, protest in itself is always justified. But I have some empathy for those who protest uh, under the conditions which I described. Now, uh, you you asked me to think more systematically about the possibility that protest can have uh, a a positive effect for the governments in uh, its negotiations with uh, other stakeholders. And I think uh, it's a very good suggestion, but uh, I, I cannot offhand specify the conditions under which this might happen. But as a Swiss, I can give you the example of the, the Swiss, where uh, referendums are very important. And traditionally, in Switzerland, the government has used the threat of a referendum in international negotiations uh, arguing that it has strengthened its position in uh, international negotiations, arguing that if it doesn't obtain concessions, it cannot sell the treaty to the people with, with who compulsorily has to vote <laughs> on the treaty. So the government in international negotiations has used the 
tool of the referendum as a tool in negotiations. And I mean that might, as more and more countries have direct democratic instruments, uh, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, that might be uh, used in the same way. Uh, in, in the Hungarian case, the opposition has used the referendum as an instrument. So the, ref, the opposition has launched a series of uh, referendums in order to sabotage, to paralyze the, the, the government, uh, the sitting government, and in order to bring it down. That's not such a pleasant use of the referendum, but that's an alternative way to use referendum uh, too. Thank you. We have time for another round of questions. The question there in the green, please. Uh, I'm Clément Pallier, I'm a Master of Public Affairs student. Uh, if I understand well, you explained that in Eastern Europe you can't predict the post-crisis election result from the pre-crisis election result. So with, with like some uh, question, but like going further, what does it imply? Are, are we witnessing a political regime sh change or just some perturbation? So do you see that? And... Uh, yeah, how do you see that? And, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't understand the question. Oh, sorry. So you said that in the regression analysis, in yes. Eastern Europe, you can't predict the post-crisis yes. uh, post, uh, election result from the pre-crisis. Yes. And do you interpret that as a perturbation or as a sign of something fundamentally changing? Is this noise? Or? Okay. Okay, and if it's just your neighbor next to you, and if everyone could please introduce themselves before asking a question. Thank you. I'm Remy Smida from the same uh, uh, program, MPA, in, at LSE. Uh, I, was, I just had a question about uh, why didn't you include uh, uh, France into your regression? Uh, maybe is it an outlier in the fact that they protest too much? Or... I was Why he didn't include France in his regression? Was that yes, your question? Yes, because I saw in your, in your presentation that you didn't include France in your, in your first regression, as I saw, so I was just one. Yeah. Okay, in, in say something country. about France. <laughs> and there's a question there in the middle. Here. Yeah, I'm Slade Mindenhall. I'm a master's student compared to politics. Um, you mentioned briefly in passing the comparative significance of you know, economic growth versus unemployment in Eastern versus Western Europe. Could you discuss briefly, because I know it's a, it can be a rather broad topic, to what extent that is a real, maybe structural difference that arises from those economies, or to what extent it's politicized? And because I know that economic indicators and measurements can be sometimes, um, you know, emphasize sometimes in contrast to their actual economic meaning. There's a, there's a question here at the front. Toby Chambers, uh, We Care Foundation. I find um, the Iceland case uh, particularly fascinating because they've done totally different um, policies and changed the dynamics. I would like to suggest that social media in particular has been used particularly in Iceland, to galvanise support and to um, 
get the, the populist um, on side, whereas our social media in other countries is actually being used as a dynamic to continually oppose um, the austerity cuts. And then there's a final question there at the back. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Hugo, Hugo de Armas. I'm a Spanish member of the 15M movement and London Occupy. I would like to ask you, uh, what do you think that is the situation in Spain, thinking that in 2008 the, the two mainstream parties have the 85% of the votes, 2012 in the next election they had 75%, and now the most recent surveys they're giving a more or less uh, a figure of 60-65%, so it's uh, a line that is going down. And if you can do in your f further analysis, for example, to put an, a sequence of the Mediterranean countries, you are doing the division between Western countries and center, uh, center uh, Eastern European, where, for example, Greece, Portugal, Italy, and Spain, they're having a similarities that they can, do, can show, for example, that you are talking about Greece, possibility to going a collapse of the system, why not we can think that this can happen as well, for example, in Spain. Um, even in the, in the situation on the, in the 80s and 90s in Latin America, where a lot of government move completely from the system, from accept that IMF or central banks were saying to move against capitalism or against neoliberalism, uh, like, for example, Venezuela, Ecuador or Bolivia, or in a more soft position, Argentina, well, um, Brazil, but, uh, Argentina is in, in, a, in a very hard position as well. So why not in Europe? We can start to see that happening in Latin America, like a contagious against the neoliberal, neoliberal measures from the IMF and in, in that perspective. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll give you a chance to answer these questions now. Yeah, again, very good questions, which I cannot all answer. I, I can answer the first question, the, the regression uh, results. Why uh, is it impossible to predict post-crisis election results on the basis of pre-crisis election results in Central and Eastern Europe? I Actually, I, I gave the reason already. It's a non-institutionalized party system. In, in Western Europe, you have parties which have been around for a while, and you have, uh, uh, you have parties which are rooted in the social structure. For example, you have uh, Christian democratic parties which are rooted in the Catholic population of these countries, or you have social democratic parties which are rooted in the labor class, uh, the working class, and which are connected to unions. You don't have something like this in Central and Eastern Europe. The party systems are new and uh, uh, the parties are reshuffling and reconfigurating all the time. For example, if you take uh, uh, Bulgaria, for an example, suddenly you have the former king coming to Bulgaria and he creates his own party and his party wins the elections. And in the next elections, people uh, have realized that this is... Uh, uh, an incompetent figurehead, so they uh, throw him out and uh, his party disappears and the uh, next party comes, Jeb, which uh, makes 40% uh, out of nothing. But that means also that the politicians, they change parties and labels uh, ad libitum from one election to the other. They regroup and they reshuffle and, and that I meant by non-institutionalized party system. France 
I, I wrote this paper uh, before the elections of France, and then I suddenly thought, oh, maybe France is changing something. And uh, the, 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 the figures I showed you are without France, but when you introduce France, nothing changes. So uh, I was very happy that uh, France didn't change anything because Sarkozy was quite heavily sanctioned. So he's another uh, case of uh, uh, an incumbent who was sanctioned heavily by the crisis. By the way, why, may I ask you, why was Angela Merkel not sanctioned? I mean, she had the bad luck to be up for re-election in 2009 when the depth of the crisis was deepest in Germany. And uh, there was minus five, minus five GDP growth. So in, in uh, the depth valley of the crisis, she gets re-elected. I mean, the social democrats were heavily punished but not Angela Merkel. Do, do, do you have an explanation for this? Well, who is the opposition? I mean, it was a grand coalition, yeah? yeah so it was, was a grand no, coalition. You know, so you had to go with one or the other, the social democrats. You knew that one or the other would have to go into government again. Yes? That's my hypothesis. It was probably seen as a foreign crisis and was scolded on the bankers. Yeah, but she, she is the party of the right. I mean, she is the party of the bankers. No? Huh? They did. I mean, they did have a banking crisis. They had to save all these uh, Landesbanken, the, the West LB, and, and, and uh, one of, what was its name? Uh, but the, several of these regional banks were in deep, deep trouble and had, uh, to the tune of several billions, had to be saved. No, Germany was. I mean, now everybody says Germany is doing fine and is uh, export champion of the world. But at the time, they had minus 5% GDP growth. And, and Angela Merkel is re-elected. I mean, no other option. And, 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 and the, they sanctioned the, the, the SPD and they went in part to smaller parties, the Spanish. I, I come to the Spanish. Huh? Um, I don't know by heart, but uh, it was less serious, yes. Yes. So now it's your turn to answer the questions. We okay. answered yours. Okay. <laughs> uh, Spain. I, I, I think you, you, you point to something very interesting, which is in line with what I have said. You, you said in 2008, the two big parties got 85%. 2012, they got 75. I mean, they were both sanctioned to a certain extent, but not too much. I mean, Spain, contrary to the Central and Eastern European countries, has uh, succeeded in institutionalizing a very strong two-party system, two and uh, some minors. Now, you are saying now they are down to 66%. So 
you are actually pointing to what I was suggesting in the second step. If the voter thinks that main parties, the main opposition parties, is just the same as the governing, the incumbent, and cannot do anything, or will not do, because of its sense of responsibility, will not do anything else than the incumbents, then voters turn to, I would say, populist alternatives. Uh, uh, in Spain, regional parties uh, very heavily. Uh, they will turn maybe... There, there is none in, in Spain so far, a populist, right? What do you think? <laughs> I can tell you about Italy. I mean, in Italy there is now uh, an electoral campaign. And uh, it, it's, it's highly complex, the lineup of the parties. But uh, uh, the left is, looks as if it is going to win the elections. So uh, in Italy, the voters are turning to the mainstream opposition. And uh, this would be contrary to uh, what I have suggested. But in Italy, this is now actually the, the first election after the crisis. The last election was in spring 2008 and was not yet affected by the crisis. And I think what you will see in Italy is that the incumbent, which is the PDL, Berlusconi, he will be punished heavily. Uh, what Berlusconi tries to do, he tries to shift the blame to Europe and to the north of Europe. So he tries to shift the blame to Merkel and to the European Union. And uh, in fact, what you see happening is a fragmentation of the right along the lines you suggest for Spain and the rise of an anti-party, which is this movement uh, of Pepe Gaylo. I don't think uh, the southern European systems, other than Greece, will, will collapse, uh, as you suggest it happened in, in Latin America. I think these party systems are too strong and too institutionalized, and the pressure uh, uh, on these parties to act responsibly which comes from Europe and from the context uh, of being a member of the Eurozone is so strong that uh, this collapse, I, I, I can't see it. But, um, I mean, it's speculative. Iceland, social media. The, the social media were also important in Portugal uh, uh, for the mobilization of very big demonstrations, surprisingly for Portuguese standards, surprisingly big demonstrations mobilized by social media. But uh, I have not yet seen studies which show really how uh, the effect of the social media has been. Uh, Arab Spring, people say it's all social media, but uh, I haven't seen studies showing that it is, in fact, social media. I think they might be overrated. Okay. Um, is there any one final question that anyone would like to ask? Okay, well, then I think we should thank... Uh
the speaker, and we should thank all of you for asking and answering excellent questions. Before we, uh, we give a hand to Professor Creasy, I just want to announce that the next lecture in this series on the Euro crisis on the 6th of February, so next week, uh, by Professor Neil Walker, with the title, A Law of Crisis or a Crisis of Law, the EU Legal Order Under Stress. So I hope I'll see many of you back for that. And can you please join me in thanking Hans-Peter Creasy for his <laughs>